everyone, it's Chris here. Um, we're going to be covering the Colin Sather travesty that's happened um, over the past week. So if that's something maybe you're not ready for, please look at the timestamps in the description. Uh, that way you can know when to skip to the rest of Brian's awesome podcast material that he has drawn up for you guys. Otherwise, I'm going to let Brian take it away from here. This was replacing our normal fun intro, but uh, obviously different circumstances this week. Anyways, go Vandals, and here's Brian. Welcome to Tubs of the Club, your official unofficial podcast of the University of Idaho Vandals. I'm your host today, Brian. You can download Tubs of the Club on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or tubsoftheclub.com. On today's episode, we are going to get to our first handful of hashtag AskTATCs that relate to the basketball season, but also dips into football a little bit, just like we did last week. We're going to update you guys on the overall standings in the Big Sky Conference and how Idaho looks. Spoiler alert, not great. And also, I'm going to spend some time going over a poll Chris ran through the Tubs of the Club Twitter handle um, on the idea of would I rather have Idaho beat Boise State, presumably in football, or have the University of Idaho win an FCS championship. But before we get to all that, we have some more serious news to go over. If you've been following really any news outlet in the Northwest, there's a good chance you heard the news about Colin Sather. Uh, Colin Sather was a redshirt freshman wide receiver for the football team. And the news about Colin is he is, and this is, this is something that is just odd. Um, I mean, the whole thing is, is terrible. The whole thing is sad. Um, Colin Sather passed away early Tuesday morning, February 26, 2019, as a result of renal cancer, uh, late stage renal cancer. We're going to go a little bit further into what I could gather about Colin's life. Um, I did spend some time researching. Now, I mean, just so you guys know, I, I do this independently. I, I, of course, did not reach out to the, the Sathers to get news about their son. Um, I did spend some time reading old Spokesman Review articles, reading some old Northwest Preps articles to get a better background form so that we can say a little bit more than he just passed. Um, but one of the, just the, the odd things at the University of Idaho is Colin is the second football player we've had who passed away due to cancer. Uh, the first one was Jace Malik, who passed away February 28th, 2016. And, and just, just part of what's odd is the coincidence. And, and it's nothing more than coincidence. We do know that. Um, both uh, Colin Sather and Jace Malik both graduated from West Valley High School in Spokane. Both came to the University of Idaho under slightly different circumstances. Uh, Jace Malik, he was diagnosed before the season, and Coach Paul Petrino honored the scholarship he'd already given him, which um, I, I know that there will be times that fans uh, and this podcast will be critical of Coach Paul Petrino, um, but I really do think it should be remembered when we are giving any sort of inventory um, on the legacy of Paul Petrino when and if he ever leaves the, the University of Idaho to coach elsewhere or if we choose to part ways, which I'm not saying we're about to. Uh, but if, if and when that happens, it's worth fans uh, remembering that one of the great things Paul Petrino did was honor the scholarship to Jace Malik and bring Jace on as um, he had an assistant coach type of role. And you can see him on the sidelines back in the 20, um, 2015 season, he had his leg amputated. 
Um, so he, he stood out in a way that was different uh, than Colin. Um, but one of the, uh, the, the first coincidence, other than they're both vandals, um, and they both, then also they both went to West Valley High School in Spokane. Um, they also passed away almost within exactly three years of each other. Uh, Colin, Colin passed late Tuesday morning, that's February 26th, uh, 2019, so this year, of course. And Jace passed away on February 28th, 2016, uh, which, again, there, there isn't really much to read into that other than it's just unfortunate, um, but it is it is a, a different part of the University of Idaho recent football legacy, uh, not only that we've lost two players to cancer, but we lost two players from the exact same high school, the exact same region of the country. But to go into the background that I could get on Colin, uh, Colin was born February 24th, 2000, passed away February 26th, 2019. Spent, I can't tell you how much of his life he spent in Spokane, well, West Valley and Spokane Valley. I can't tell you how much, how much, how much time he, he spent there. But I can tell you that when Colin went to West Valley High School, he was a all great Northern League football player as a junior and as a senior on offense and also as a senior on defense. In addition to being a, a good football player, he was a, an all no, great Northern League selection, both as a junior and senior for basketball. And in an article published on Northwest Prep Report, uh, it cited that Colin used to wake up while he was in high school. Uh, he used to wake up at 4.30 in the morning to work out before school with former NFL tight end Nate Overbay in Spokane, then drive back into Spokane Valley, go to school, and then take part in practices. You know, this is presumably outside of football season. Other than take part in practices, it, tra track practice, possibly basketball practice after school. Um, he, we know he accepted a, a spot on the University of Idaho. He was number 82 for us as a wide receiver, but he, he redshirted last season, so he, he did not play. Uh, but I wanted to bring up the part about him waking up early, you know, 4.30 in the morning. Now, he's not the only football player. He's not the only athlete. He's not the only student who wakes up early or who woke up early for uh, commitments before class that related to something extracurricular. But I like to cite that because when in the world of, of alums, when we talk about players, um, or just in the world of fans, when we talk about players, especially if there's any sort of dissatisfaction, it's easy to forget that the guys who play, in many cases, the guys who play these sports at the collegiate level, even if you just, even if you just redshirt, even if you're just on the scout team, or even if you are just on special teams, you play 15 downs your entire senior season. Um, those guys work hard to make that team. Uh, those guys very often work harder at keeping their roster spots or staying in shape then a lot of people work at essentially anything they do their entire lives. Um, and uh, in a lot of ways to me, talking about Colin, it is extraordinary uh, to think about a kid being disciplined like that, waking up at 4.30 in the morning to go travel, do workouts in the morning, go to school. By the way, the Northwest Preps article, which was posted before Colin graduated from West Valley, cited his GPA in high school at being 3.4. And I, I bring that up just to go over that if when he was in high school, he was working out before school, going to school, pulling solid grades, and then taking, he was a three-sport athlete after school. Um, that's 
that's a hardworking kid. Um, and obviously he maintained working hard like that while he was at University of Idaho because he was still on the roster. He was, um, he was diagnosed with his cancer on January 17th. And if you look at the Go Vandals website, Colin was on the roster to, to be on the team next year. That has not, as of this recording on um, February 27th, the Go Vandals website has not been updated, but I, I cite that to say that he was working hard through his freshman year of college, and that's that's where he left us. So according to, and this information is gathered from the combination of uh, his, the GoFundMe site that was initially set up to solicit donations to aid um, in uh, paying for the cancer treatment. Colin's symptoms first began on January 17th. He went to the hospital on January 21st, and he was diagnosed pretty quick with advanced renal cancer or stage four cancer. Um, renal, in case, you are, in case you're listening, you are not familiar with the term, that is cancer of the kidneys. Now this information is from Bleacher Report. It is the timeline reference on Bleacher Report was not 100% clear, but uh, the cancer that Colin had, according to the article, was not limited to his kidneys. It started in his kidneys and it spread to his neck and his lungs. Colin began his treatment immediately and the plan uh, was for him to begin dialysis and chemotherapy at Deaconess in Spokane. And then when he was stabilized, he would transfer to Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. He didn't, he obviously didn't make it that far. He, he didn't make it to the stabilizing part. He, he celebrated his 19th birthday on February 24th and then had about one more day. And then he passed away early in the morning on February 26th. The GoFundMe account is still active for Colin's family. And um, I, I want to spend just a little bit of time going over the GoFundMe part in case people are interested. And if you, if you have the ability to, um, I, I do recommend donating. Um, I don't know that family at all. I can't comment on their financial situation. Um, and I don't, even if I could, I don't want to. Um, I, I do know that one of the great indignities of death for the survivors is very often you, in the midst of having this lost, uh, lost loved one, maybe a lost parent, in this case, a lost son, you have the weight of losing the, the family member. And then you have a mountain of bills that do not necessarily go away. Uh, the, the funeral itself, and I don't know what their plans are for the funeral, but generally speaking, funerals are not cheap. Um, I do not know what the um, payment situation is for the family in terms of the treatment he received, but based off how early we are into the 2019 year, this is just practicality for insurance purposes. That is early in the span of people working through their deductibles. Um, so I, I, of course, again, I have not contacted this family. I can't tell you any more about their financial situation. I, I just do know that it is an awful, uh, awful place to be to lose a family member and then be given this army of bills um, where not only do you lose, the first thing you care about is losing a loved one, but not only do you lose a loved one, but then you have many people to pay off. And because this relates to medical care, 
and because of the way the situation we have with medical care in the United States, that that is a lot of money. Now the families raised a good amount of money through their GoFundMe, but um, if you are able to and interested, I highly re recommend going to their GoFundMe page. At the very least, uh, it gives a little bit more of a background into what happened with Colin and his family. Um, and uh, Colin, Colin is survived by his mom, Trina, his dad, Eric, his stepmom, Judy, and his sister, Lindsay, and brother, Justin. At West Valley, he was number 18. At the University of Idaho, Idaho, he was number 82. We didn't get to see him play University of Idaho. We're not going to get to see him. Uh, but it's a big deal uh, to lose someone like we have. We, we, we know, uh, since we, we went through this as Vandal fans, with losing Jace Malik, uh, you know, you, you read about it. You see that, you know, there, there might be a GoFundMe or for Jace. I believe there's going to be a documentary or something like that in the making. But... Uh, the reverberations of this for the family will be felt for a long time. Um, also, for the underclassmen on this team, the reverberations of this will be felt for you know the next four years. Um, so, if anyone who uh, knows the uh, Sather family, or um, anyone who is a member of the Sather family, is listening, we we offer our condolences. Um, obviously, this is uh, this is news we wish no one had to deal with. And Colin will always be a vandal. He, for the people who know, they, the next time you see a number 82 on the sideline, it's going to be odd. Uh, for a lot of people, it'll be sad. But that's where we're at. Colin Souther, February 24, 2000 to February 26, 2019. Rest in peace. Uh, transitioning from the, the bad news, we, we do have some positive news. Uh, it has to do with the ICCU arena. Uh, this is based off an update from the University of Idaho's website, which we talked about last week, that the, the university had raised $40 million of a projected $48.5 million. It was news that the State Board of, the State Board of Education was not going to see uh, final proposals in a meeting for uh, beginning constructions on the arena. We went over that last week. It's still expected to, this, this is still expected to come up as an item in March or April so that we can begin, but we have some financial news. Uh, based off the University of Idaho's website that tracks how much, is, how much money is needed and how much money has been raised for the arena, the gap is not 8.5 million anymore. Uh, the gap is down to 2 million. First off, um, I can't explain why, but the estimated cost of facility is down from 48.5 million to 46 million. And the amount of money raised is now up from 40 million to 44 million. Again, it's not clear why the estimate is down, but again, we're in the world of estimates and estimates are understood to be as accurate as they can be, but there is margin for error and they can be subject to things like construction costs rising, material costs rising, uh, needed changes to the plan um, in terms of, let's say, size or needed amenities. So for example, we talked last week about how part of why the cost increased from 30 million to 48.5 had to do with the uh, need to build a ramp where a car could drive directly into the arena down to the court area. And that was part of why the cost went up. Um, we do know that if 
estimate costs can go up and go down a little bit. And I guess we're in the middle of good news because estimated costs are down to 46 million, which means with the additional fundraising, we're two, we're 2 million away. And that's before we go over the likely approved student fee increase that, that will be, it will be addressed at the next state board of education meeting. The proposed fee has to do with student use. Um, I, I don't know if that's the exact correct term, but all students initially had been paying $15 per per student to help fund the arena. That number is going to be doubled from $15 to $30. And in short, it looks like we, it looks like our arena is there. We're in the final stretch. I I will now say it will be flooring if when we have that um, that last state board of education meeting either in early April or late March, if we don't hear news about plans to break ground for our new arena. So it's good news. We, this has been talked about for a long time, not just on this podcast, but if you've been to a game of the Cowan Spectrum, you know, though the Cowan Spectrum is better than let's say Holt Arena because we have those enormous curtains that partition uh, the gym. By the way, I'm really curious about what the dry cleaning bill has to is for those curtains, uh, which is not important at all. But anyway, um, because we have those curtains, it is a better dome facility than, let's say, what Northern Arizona has. It's a better dome facility than what Idaho State has. The University of Idaho really was lacking facility-wise for both men's and women's basketball, and looks like we're going to get it. You know, based on the artistic renderings, Idaho will go from having maybe the eighth best arena, maybe ninth best arena, to top three in the conference. You know, right now, and I'm not talking about size. I, I don't think size matters as much as um, as much as it probably feels like it does. You know, we're one of the things that is odd in the Big Sky this year, and this is specifically for the University of Montana. You know, University of Montana looks like there's a very good chance they're going to have their second consecutive berth into the NCAA tournament. They've been, they have three league losses. They're 20 and seven overall. And in Missoula, they're averaging less than 5,000 a person at that, at their games, which now Idaho fans might hear that and think, well, what's the problem? Well, we're averaging like around 800. Montana has a unique situation for both their football team and their basketball team. Um, one, they're, they're good, uh, which helps, helps build support for them. But Montana, the state, has very little competition for, Mon for the University of Montana and Montana State University in terms of athletics. The University of Montana and Montana State are the two biggest universities in the state. Montana State is bigger in terms of enrollment than Montana, uh, but the media focus is, uh, it at times seems like it's Missoula-centric, which would favor the University of Montana. They don't have to compete with power five school eight miles away like the university of idaho does they don't have to compete with a school in a conference that is considered better athletically um, in the state capital which we do boise state is a team that we compete with for attention in this area but we also have got university of gonzaga uh, definitely gets media attention from the, the spokesman review from the Coeur d'Alene press and some from moscow coleman daily news and also during football season, you know, we have the Seattle Seahawks that that all those teams take up some of the finite amount of words on a sports page 
and it takes up a finite amount of minutes on radio broadcast. And when you go through, when you go through all those teams that the University of Idaho is competing with regionally, it can make sense why even when we were FBS, we were not receiving the same kind of attention that we wish that we were. Well, the University of Montana doesn't have that problem. The closest football team for them is either Denver or Seattle, which is a long ways away. They don't have the power fives they're competing with. It's really just them. Um, and that, that's different. But still, University of Montana, they're in a bigger city than Moscow with no real competition geographically. They're getting about a little bit under 5,000 or right around 5,000 per game. Um, you know, in Moscow, I, I don't see us getting 5,000 anytime soon. You know, I've been watching the team for a while. The closest we got was last season when we played Washington State. We had, we had around 4,300 people show up to that game. Um, and that was it. And aside from that, from a couple games against WSU over the last 10 years and a, the last time we played Boise State in Moscow, we haven't had reliably huge attendance figures. So I don't think University of Idaho needs to obsess over the gym size. So is there a chance that our, our gym is going to be smaller than some? Yeah, no question. You know, when we think about what are the best, what facility ranking will University of Idaho have? Well, no question. It's going to be competing with Portland State, which has a new gym that opened this year, Viking Pavilion, which if you haven't seen it, it looks great. It only seats around 3,000, but you know what? It doesn't matter. That's the level of support they get. It's better in terms of game atmosphere, which, by the way, that is part of what it's used to recruit players, not just the size of the gym, but what the gym feels like on game day. Portland State's gym has, a, it seats around 3,000, and it's fine. It's a gorgeous-looking place. They, right now, have, I think, in some ways, the nicest facility. Now, Weber State or University of Montana, if you want to factor in size, it might be up there. But, you know, at, at this point, the top five in the conference in no particular order of gyms are Southern Utah, which Southern Utah is, has a gym. And by the way, Northern Colorado is in here. Northern Colorado and Southern Utah have gyms that are styled identical, which is they only have one tier of seating. Now, it covers the entire basketball court because it is a basketball-only facility. But it's not like Dahlberg in Montana where there's two tiers or even Cal and Spectrum in some ways is two tiers because we have the student section pull out bleachers on one side that only go up a few rows. And then on the opposite side, we have the Kibbe Dome seats. And we know how big the Kibbe Dome side seats are. For Southern Utah and Northern Colorado, they have what their gym looks like. If you cut the seating size in half of the Kibbe Dome side of Cal and Spectrum, and I mean in terms of height, they have that level, level of seating around the entire gym. So those two are in the top five. Weber State and Montana are both in the top five, although their facilities are bigger. And then Portland State probably has the nicest place. Now they don't have seating that wraps around the entire gym in that way. But seriously, look at the artistic renderings on the Portland State website, or you can probably find clips if you just YouTube Portland State basketball. The place looks gorgeous. Our place is going to be modeled differently than theirs, but it is the modern architecture inside that looks different that I think will partially help move the University of Idaho's facility up in addition to just being new and nice we also have an artistic motif and that might not matter to some people but when you talk about a building 
being more than the sum of its parts, part of that has to do with a combination of the artistic motifs and just what is done with space. And now a different version of that is, you know, in football, look at, look at Washington Grizzly Stadium. Washington Grizzly Stadium to me is no question the nicest football stadium in the big sky. If you look at what is done with that space, it is not just bleachers. Now they have different parts that have been built at different times. So there are ways where it looks segmented, but that stadium is more than is more than just a set of bleachers whereas let's say you look at the southern utah football facilities now that truly is just a couple sides of bleachers on them or if you look at the eastern washington uh, football field roost field they they do have the grandstand side which i guess that's the word i was looking for for montana they have grandstand plus they have multiple tiers or multiple levels of seating now, in Roos Field, they have the grandstand on one side, and then they just have some, some really crappy high school-level bleachers on the other. Um, that's, an, that's a different example of, you know, the, the field is more than just the seat you have. The artistic renderings that we have, and just go to the University of Idaho website, just Google ICCU Idaho basketball, and look at the pictures. The motif is to have exposed timber both on the inside and the outside to connect with the Idaho timber industry. And now, will a recruit see that and be like, oh, well, thank God, there's a gym with with timber exposed no but what they will see is well this is something different than when i look at let's say idaho state where this is different than let's say eastern washington um, so i i think that our fans even if we only have you know 3,700 to 4,200 seats that's that needs to be fine um, we're we're looking and we're moving into an era in sports attendance that there's a chance that a lot of places are going to look at having smaller venues. Now, just part of that is because you can watch. It's cheaper to just watch games on TV. And you know, if you have Pluto TV, that's free. All you, all you need is your internet connection. Now, I, I don't think it's superior to watch the game on Pluto. Pluto has its own problems. But there are other streaming services, and this does, is not limited to the big sky. You know, if, if the big sky changed contracts and ESPN was streaming the games through ESPN Plus. We still have all the games available online, and that me that makes people less likely, I think, to attend the games in person. We're not the only team that is dealing with that. You know, University of Montana is in the midst of a great season, and they are not averaging close to the figures they're accustomed to. I don't know if that's a large-scale problem in basketball, or what it is is it's a large-scale problem for non-premier programs. And big, the Big Sky is a mid to low major conference. Uh, for us to have a premier program, we need teams to go to the NCAA tournament and win games. And we would need that same team to do that a ton. You know, if you look at the West Coast Conference, now Gonzaga has an incredible environment for basketball. Not every team in the West Coast Conference is Gonzaga. Not every team sells out every single game. Gonzaga is a different animal. They're atypical. Same, same with Duke. Not every team in the ACC is selling out every single game with screaming fans. If you, th this is, was present in Big Sky football as well as in Big Sky basketball, levels of enthusiasm really vary program to program, which is a long way of saying, I, I think it's great that we're probably going to be closer to that 4,000 mark seating wise because I care more about us having an exciting environment for the games than having capacity equal to Cal and Spectrum right now that no one's sitting in. Let's circle back. Good news is we're 2 million away 
And that means this, this gym's getting built this year. We're going to find out sooner rather than later that ICCU ground is going to break. Quote me now, cite me later. Shifting over to basketball. You know, Idaho lost both their games last week. We are now 1-15 in conference, 4-23 overall. The good news is there's only four games left, guys. We have our last two home games this week. Uh, the way the rest of the conference is shaking out is Montana is in first place at 13-3. Northern Colorado second place at 12-4. They beat Montana on Monday uh, to, to move up a so they are now only a game behind University of Montana. However, University of Montana is in the driver's seat to still hang another banner. But the winner of the conference matters a little bit less now because you know back in 2014-15, the winner of the conference hosted the tournament. It was a huge deal to be in first place. You know now we're really just competing for buys, and you're competing to be on what side of the what side of the bracket. Uh, so Montana's in first, 13 and three in conference. Northern Colorado second, 12 and four. Weber State third 10 and, at 10 and 6. Montana State and Eastern Washington are tied at fourth, both at 9 and 7. Those are the top five seeds who will receive a bye in the first round. And the rest of the league is right around 500. A few teams are below 500, and then there's us. You know, after our 13th straight loss, by the way, the teams we lost to were Northern Arizona and Southern Utah. Our Rankings and analytic metrics for sports reference were at 349 out of 353 Division I programs. Ken Palm has us at 350 out of 353 programs. NCAA Net has us at 341, and RPI has us at 343. Yeah, I, I don't know what other context to bring to that, guys. We're, we're pretty excited for the season to be over. Uh, we're happy we got some hashtag SDATCs we're going to go over so that we have some more interesting content. Uh, but we'll, we'll breeze through basketball stuff pretty quick. So the first game... We lost last week was at Northern Arizona. We lost that game 54 to 75. I don't have much commentary on that because on that day in Flagstaff, there was 30 inches of snow. So there was no stream. There was no radio broadcast that I could access. So all I had were box scores, same thing you guys have. Uh, but I did follow on GameCast. And this game was over within about nine minutes of tip-off. You know, we were down 22 to 42 in, at the end of the first half. You know, we were only outscored by one in the second half, so I guess that's a moral victory. But it was just bad. You know, we scored 54 points. It's embarrassing. Um, the good news is, for us, is Cam Tyson scored 15 points, uh, shot 5 of 11 from 3, 5 of 13 from field overall. Uh, so all his points came from the three-point line. Jared Rodriguez picked up 11 points and 10 rebounds, but shot 4 of 12 from the field. Trayvon Allen came off the bench. Um, and there's no news I'm aware of of an injury. Um, I, I really don't know what the math was in putting Trayvon on the bench. He has been struggling still uh, since that big game against Montana back in mid-January. Scored six points off the bench, shot two of eight from the field. Um, the entire team shot 35.7% from the field for the game. Um, and just as an example, other than Cameron Tyson, our team shot two of 10 from behind the three. So in short, it was a, it was just a pretty bad offensive showing. Bernie Andre led Northern Arizona with 22 points, 13 rebounds on 10 of 14 from the field. And, yeah, I mean, there, there's not really too much for me to go through in that game. You know, we scored 54 points. That was another game that we've had in the January-February span where we scored, where we lost by double figures. And we 
were just awful on offense. Our offensive rating was 84.4. Uh, the defensive rating we gave up was 117.2. So in there were only 64 possessions for the game, which is a slow-paced game. And we we still gave up, uh, you know, 75 points. Is not a bad offensive outing, but for 64 possessions, that's a pretty slow-paced game. Th- that just means on defense, we were giving up easy points, which is one of the things we do. So we're going to bail on talking about the Northern Arizona game. We will talk a little bit more about the Southern Utah game, which there was a stream for that, so I could watch that. And we lost that game in in Cedar City, 76 to 85. This game was different. Why was it different? For the first time that I saw this year, we spread the floor. I've been talking on this podcast for the entire season about the, the just unbelievably simple proposition. We have a guard-heavy team, and our strength is perimeter-oriented. That's a team that needs to run. That's a team that needs to spread the floor and attack the basket. We finally did it. And we had our best offensive outing in quite some time. You know, we had an offensive rating of 101.3, which is not incredible. But in the month of February, we had... It was only the third time in the entire month of February that we had an offensive rating better than 100. You know, in that same span, we had an offensive rating below 90 four different times. So in a lot for a lot of our games, our offense, it didn't matter how bad our defense was. Our offense was so bad that we weren't going to beat anyone if we didn't have an elite defense. And one of the ways young teams should lose or they should show their youth is through struggling on defense. Now part of that's because a lot of a lot of guys who come from high school in their first couple of years when they play, one of the adjustments is they can't outclass players athletically on defense. It's it's not surprising for young players who in the jump from high school to playing college are not ready for the defensive demands of having to focus on defense all the time instead of being able to more or less coast on being just taller or more athletic or just better spatially than everyone else they're competing with. And they have to learn the nuance of defense. And that takes time. That is part of why you can expect young teams to not be very good at defense. And we we gave up 85 points. We gave up a defensive rating that was way, way too high. You know, it was 113.3. So, you know, if you're giving up a defensive rating that high, you're going to have to be very good on offense to win. But this game was different because we were competitive. And the big thing we did is we spread the floor. Now, in terms of box scores, one, this is our first single-digit loss since January 5th. Let that sink in a little bit. Almost two full months. That's almost the entire conference season. For, what, 70% of the conference season? We hadn't, we had not had a, a single close game. Just no game where I had as competitive. It was great to know that, hey, this is what it feels like when the game is in doubt with three minutes left on the clock. Now, box score-wise, uh, the big guy who benefited from us spreading the floor first was Jared Rodriguez, scored 28 points, grabbed 11 rebounds, shot 8 of 14 from the field, 11 of 12 from the free throw line. He showed the Steven Madison-style game, which now that's a reference for alums, but if you're a recent alum who didn't see Steven Madison, Steven Madison, he's an assistant coach, on the, well, he's a graduate assistant for the team right now. He had an inside-outside game. He was out six foot eight. He could shoot. 
He'd take players off the dribble, and he could post up players who were smaller. Jared Rodriguez has that style of game, but far further advanced than Steven Madison was as a freshman. Now, whether Jared Rodriguez will continue to build is a different question, but part of the promise that we saw to Jared Rodriguez this year is that he has the ability to be just a matchup nightmare for big sky teams because he can shoot, because he can put the ball on the floor. There's a good chance he is going to be too skilled or too fast for some post to guard him. And then if a guard is assigned to him, that is when he should maybe go into the post. Jared Rodriguez scored a huge majority of his points, one off the dribble and shooting some pull-up shots, but also he got to the free throw line. He did not get to the free throw line by posting up the whole game. He was fouled on drives. He was Now he was fouled someone post up some putbacks, but he didn't get 12 free throw attempts because he was posting up. The, the team just couldn't handle him. He was an aggressive wing player. That's how he put up those numbers. That's the kind of promise that we were, that I believe we had in the guy. I believe it's still there. I'm just hoping that uh, we're not going to squander it by trying to make him a post-up player. Or I'm just hoping we don't squander it by trying to throw him in the post or throwing Scott Blakeney, who's just not a scorer, down the block. And then our offense is actually defense against wing penetration. Now, Cam Tyson had a solid game, scored 15 points again, shot 5 of 12 from the field. All his field goal attempts were threes. Scott Blakeney, by the way, this is another thing that people don't necessarily understand about spreading the floor. It does not only benefit guards. If your posts are not are not able to overpower the other team's defenders by being just incredibly large, incredibly skilled, or incredibly athletic, which, by the way, Scott Blakeney is none of those, they need open shots to get points. Scott Blakeney scored 11 points on six field goal attempts. He scored exactly the way I think it's best for him. One, he, he is developing a solid mid-range shot. Now, I hope he can extend that to to a three because if he's shooting from 17 feet he might as well shoot it from 19 and have that chance at an extra one point but scott had a few catch and shoot opportunities where off of screens it was just wide open because the floor was spread and the defense correctly decided to try and stop the dribble penetration and that left scott open for good shots just like nate sherwood got last year off the penetration from vic sanders it also helps Scott rebounding-wise because when he is down in the post, he is. there are more bodies down there for him to compete with. And when we run that wheel action where we have our post screen for the two wings who cross, the two wings run across the, the baseline and run up screens from the opposite side of the court, and both those posts seal, that is four bodies total in that confined space. There are just more hands to get, and more bodies to get in the way rebounding-wise. It gives Scott Blakeney a better chance to get rebounds to be in a put-back position or a position to score easy points in that way when we spread the floor. So when I say we should spread the floor, it is not just for the guards. It does help the guards, but it also makes it easier for post players too. This is something Eastern Washington has more or less figured out. This is something University of Montana is doing now. Uh, now they had the best back-to-basket player in the conference earlier in the year. So them going in the post is different than us. But with Jamara Co out, Montana is spreading the floor. And what they are getting, A, they're putting out all shooters. So the floor is really spread. But also, it opens the floor for the guys who try to score close to the basket anyway. So there are fewer bodies for them to have to navigate and run into. Scott Blakeney 
was maybe the second greatest beneficiary of us spreading the floor against Southern Utah. Now, uh, another box score piece, Trayvon Allen scored 10 points on 12 field goal attempts, shot five, 12 from the field, did grab six rebounds. Um, he's, he's really struggling to close the year out. His, his per game numbers, he's actually not our leading scorer anymore. Cameron Tyson's our leading scorer. He, Trayvon in conference is averaging 13.2 points a game on 12.3 field goal attempts per game. That is exactly why I harped for so long about how uh, the, the mid-range kind of shooting he does a ton of is hard to be good for long stretches because you have to shoot 60% from the field. Otherwise, you're averaging roughly a point per shot and teams love... Opposing coaches love the proposition that the person taking the most shots on the other team is only averaging one point per shot. That means the other... That means the defense wins in that situation. You know, Vic Sanders, when he was here last year, he averaged around 1.5 points per shot. That's a huge jump versus one point, you know, around... Trayvon's averaging less than 1.1 points per shot right now in conference. My hope is in the offseason, he develops his three-point shot a little bit more. Um, ideally, just based on what we've seen, if we're going to be good next year, he, he just can't be our leading scorer. Now, he definitely does contribute. Um, and some of the stats are a little bit skewed because he's spent a ton of games with nowhere to penetrate. So he, he took a lot of bad shots. But even with the floor opening against Southern Utah, um, he took a lot of contested shots. It's just hard to, to hit those at 60% every game. Uh, for Southern Utah, the guy who killed us was Harrison Butler, scored 21 points, grabbed 13 rebounds. And uh, Cameron Aluyaton for Southern Utah, he is a Boise State transfer. I only cite that as positive news for Cameron that he got out of Boise State. He scored 17 points, grabbed six rebounds as well. Uh, kind of the story of the game in terms of the margin. You know, most stats were pretty close between us. Southern Utah beat us on second chance points. 13, they scored 13 second chance points. We scored four. That's the nine point spread. We lost by nine. There you go, guys. Um, the, the big positive, of course, is that we are finally competitive. We sp- finally spread the floor. I have no idea if we're going to see this in our upcoming games. Uh, this week, we play Thursday, February 28th against Portland State in Moscow. Portland State is 13-14 on the year, 8-8 eight eight in conference. They beat us the first time we played, 53-69 in Portland in late January. Uh, the name to watch for Portland State is Holland Woods. He's the only guy who's averaging double figures for them in conference. Averages 15.1 points a game, 5.7 assists per game, and 4.1 turnovers per game. Um, he is their point guard. He's by far the most electric player. When Portland State does well, they do have other guys who contribute, but there's no reliable second contributor for that team. That's part of why they're 8-8 eight eight in conference. They started out the conference season 1-5. and five. Uh, They're 7-3 and three since. They are looking... Uh, they're mostly playing to just improve their tournament spot. Now, it's not out of the question that they could finish top five, but they need some things to go right for them that are out of their hands. Uh, but that game is Thursday, February 28th, 7 p.m. in Cowan Spectrum. And then Saturday, March 2nd at 7 p.m., we play Sacramento State. The two big names against Sacramento State to watch are Marcus Graves. He scored he scored 17.1 points per game. Uh, dishes out 5.1 assists per game. Josh Patton is their center, averages 13.3 points per game. Grabs 6.3 rebounds and blocks 1.7 shots per game. Now, when we played Sacramento State in Sacramento, that to me might... Uh, that's, no, it wasn't a low point. It was one of our low points. We scored we scored 48 points at Sacramento State. Lost 48 to 69. That was, that was bad. Now, if I'm ranking our low points in conference, no question... The embarrassment in Missoula, 59 to 100, is number one. Sac State might be number two. 48 points is bad. 
Um, actually, uh, maybe the loss at Northern Colorado, the loss at home to Northern Colorado. Yeah, the loss at, at home to Northern Colorado is our second low point where we lost 47-75. But Sac State, we have a lot of low points, but Sac State is our third low point. And I guess part of why that was a big deal is that was the turning point for us. We were 1-5 headed into the Sac State-Portland State trip last time in January when both Sac State and Portland State were 1-5 as well. And it was at that point that I, my belief was, look, if we're going to pick up wins, we got to pick them up here. Otherwise, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, we lost both those games. We went on a tailspin, uh, losing a ton of pretty boring, pretty bad games. And the big news is, for us, we, we finally looked okay at Southern Utah. Our, and, it, and it completely, to me, was based off of an evolved offensive strategy where we spread the floor. And it gave our creators, guys like Jared Rodriguez, who even though he is a four, he can create off the dribble. It gave him space to work. So in terms of any sort of predictions with Sac State and Portland State, you know, I don't, I don't think that's the best way to spend our time on the podcast, guys. We have one league win. We've got two D1 wins total. Safe to bank on us losing right now. Um, I would like to see us win a few games, but, you know, attendance figures for Idaho right now, we're averaging 852 per home game. It's because we have one, one win conference. Uh, there's no reason to be particularly excited about Idaho right now. You know, our our margin of defeat is negative 15.7. That is the worst in the 21st century in the big sky. A few teams that we can compare to, but there's a nine-point gap between us and the second-worst scoring margin in the league. Idaho State is negative 6.2. And then there's a big gap between Idaho State and the third-worst scoring margin, where NAU is negative 2.4. We are a stratospheric improvement away from the third worst scoring margin in the league. Um, I don't mean to just kind of bail on the basketball park because I'm still watching. I still want to comment. I, I gave a you know a healthy explanation of how things went against Southern Utah. You know the big deal was we spread the floor. We played fun. We ran a little bit. Trayvon Allen got some transition points. Uh, Jared Rodriguez got some good looks. Cam Tyson was taking threes where it wasn't like it was against Eastern Washington, where Cam Tyson he made he made a a ton of threes against Eastern, but he also took some shots that you would call bad shots, as in the only reason he was able to take them was because the result of the game was, it, it wasn't in doubt. It was, can we get some points? And we scored 57 against Eastern. He made a couple back-to-back, he made back-to-back threes from like five feet behind the line, which is cool that he can make those, but on average, we would not call it a great possession where, you know, off one pass, he jacks up a shot five feet behind the line. Against Southern Utah, it looked different. I'm hoping that team comes back. I don't know if we're going to see that team in the future. We'll see. But uh, like I said, we play Thursday, February 28th, against Portland State at 7. And then Saturday, March 2nd, against Sacramento State. That's at 7 as well. Now we're going to shift over to some hashtag AskTATCs we received this week. And if you're a listener, you know I part of how I got involved in the podcast, guys, was I liked what Chris and TJ and Martin were doing, but every once in a while there's, I'd listen to a podcast and think, Hey, I wish they would have talked about this. So I sent them the hashtag ask ATCs and then they had to talk about it. Same thing here. We can do it basketball. We can do it really anything. If you, if you want to shape the content, send in some, some hashtag ask ATCs. The first one I'm going to give a very um, uninspiring answer to kind of it comes from Martin. His question was about players committing to Idaho for next year. Um, who looks promising based off what we've seen? I want to table that 
until the end of the season so that we, one, just have more time to go over who we have coming in and what that could mean for the roster. So, Martin, I am choosing to table that question. We have not forgotten you. We're just, I'm just going to let it go for now. Now, next, we have hashtag hashtag AskTATT from Kyler Neal, friend of the podcast. He is the Eastern Washington Administrator for FCS Fans Nation. He contributes to the FCS Fans Nation podcast. His question, what's worse, the 2018 men's Idaho men's basketball team or the 2012 Idaho football team? That is a great question. And I want to go into the basketball side of that where Chris Hammond asked a related question. Is this the worst Vandal men's hoops team ever statistically or in, or statistically or in your opinion, both again, these are both hashtag ask TATCs. Now I did some research so we could try to quantify, you know, how bad is this Idaho team? There are two teams that we can compare the 2018, 2019 team to that's the 1971, 72, and 1976-77 teams. The 71-72 team went 5-20 and overall, 2-12 and in conference. They were coached by the famous Wayne Anderson. And the 1976-77 team went 5-21, and 3-11 in conference, coached by Jim Jarvis. Now, if you spend time on the All Vandals forum, you'll sometimes see the name Jim Jarvis referenced as the bad year. And there's a reason. Uh, he had one of the three worst teams that we have that we can even compare. And now the reason I pick these three teams is I like sports reference has their SRS ranking, which is their version of Ken Palm ranking that disregards non D one competition uh, to factor in in-game performance and strength schedule. The only two teams that are comparable in terms of SRS to our 2018, 2019 team are the 76, 77, 71, 72 team. Now, there are some ways where I think the 2018-19 team is probably worse. Now, the first is we don't actually have four wins. We're 4-23 and overall. We have two D1 wins. We're 2-22 and against D1 competition. So in more, no, in about the same number of games, we have fewer wins than both the 76-77 and the 71-72 teams. So that's part one. The second part I want to look at is scoring margin. The 71-72 team had a scoring margin of negative 14.2, and the 76-77 team had a scoring margin of negative 15.3. Now, we have a scoring margin of negative 9.2, but that is buttressed off of killing teams that are below NAIA level earlier in the year. So I I don't count that number when I'm comparing these teams. Our in-conference scoring margin is negative 15.7 which is just a little bit worse than the Jim Jarvis team uh, at negative 15.3. Now the scoring scoring margin is a, is probably the simplest way to gauge whether a team is going to reliably be good or bad. It just tells you, Hey, is the team getting blown out a ton? Are they playing close games? Are they, they killing teams? We are getting blown out regularly in kind of a down year for the big sky. You know, we, the big sky lost a few, a few real good players to graduation last year, including, you know, from Idaho, Vic Sanders and BJ Blake. The The conference has been real top heavy in that Montana is kind of their own tier. Weber State is solid, but they've been up and down. Uh, Northern Colorado is strong, but they 
for they have a real high floor, but I feel their ceiling's limited based off having only one reliable scorer. And until Eastern Washington, Montana State asserted themselves as being, you know, in the discussion for good, there there were just a lot of not very good teams in the Big Sky this year. And Idaho is just miles, miles away from them. Um, what I can tell you is this is no question Don Verlin's worst team. His second worst team was the 2012-2013 team that went 12 and 18 on the season 7 and 11 in conference. But that was back when they were in the in the WAC, and I believe that was back when the WAC was stronger than it is now when the Western Athletic Conference was much closer to what we understand the Mountain West to be today. Uh, in Verlin's overall tenure, you know, he's been here 11 years and he at the end of this season, he will have had six winning seasons and five losing seasons. Five losing seasons were his second year in 2009-2010. Then from 2012 to 2015, there were three consecutive losing seasons. And then now here, 2018-2019. Positive news for, for the Coach Rowland situation is uh, we're coming off three of his best years. Where three seasons ago, we were 21-13, then went 19-14. Last year, we were 22-9. Those were all teams in the big sky. Uh, but the bad news that I have for us is we're not those teams. We're four and twenty-three, or actually, actually two and twenty-two against Division One teams. And I, I did some research. By the way, Chris did a little bit of this research too, to look at is there any sort of precedent for teams like as bad as us in the Big Sky turning their seasons around the next year? Because the understood paradigm for a lot of fans, and by the way, a lot of sports media too. This isn't a thing fans invented on their own, was that, yeah, Idaho is rough this year, but just wait until the next couple of years. I am not certain that we can say that growth is going to take place because well, let's look at the stats first. You know, the comparable teams are 2013-14 Southern Utah, 2015-16 Northern Arizona, and Sac State in both 2007-2008 and 2008-2009. So those back-to-back seasons. If we look at how those teams did in the following years, it took Sacramento State until 2014-15 to have a winning season. Now, maybe Sac State doesn't belong in this conversation because in their D1 history, which is 28 years, they have one winning season total. So maybe they don't belong here. I don't know if there's something structurally different about them. But Sac State in those those couple of years, they're awful. They did not rebound immediately. Northern Arizona, they had an awful season in 2015-16. Now, by the way, what I did is I picked teams that had a mix of a comparable scoring margin to Idaho and a comparable SRS from sports reference ranking. The, the Idaho SRS ranking right now is negative 18.88, which, I mean, that number doesn't necessarily mean anything if you're listening to it. Just suffice it to say, it's kind of like Ken Palm. If your ranking is negative, it means you're pretty bad. You know, last year, Idaho had a positive ranking in SRS of 0.82. Uh, but part of that's a function of being a low major. It's hard to have a high ranking number unless you are beating teams that are you know nationally ranked. But um, you know, in terms of Idaho recent history, you know, the closest team to being as bad in SRS ranking is Idaho back in the Leonard Perry and George Pfeiffer days. You know, in George Pfeiffer's first season with the team, they had a negative twelve point five six ranking. The 76-77 team, they had a negative 17.88. And the 71-72 team, they had a negative 23.63. So based off of those metrics, that 71-72 team is probably the worst. But I'm going to go back to our present. The, the point of the discussion was, hey, is there any precedent for rebounding? 
Well, uh, like I said, Sac State, maybe they don't belong in the discussion, but they certainly did not rebound anywhere near close to within a year. Northern Arizona had their awful season in 2015-2016. Has Northern Arizona rebounded? No. No, they have not. You know, this year, Northern Arizona, and this is the best year they've had in a few years, they are 7-10 and 10 in conference, 9-18 and 18 overall. Now, is 7-10 and 10 in conference acceptable? Well, I mean, if 1-15 is your barometer, it's a huge improvement. But it took Northern Arizona two full seasons to, to approach not even 500. There's a real good chance Northern Arizona is not, not even going to be 500. So it, have they rebounded? Uh, I mean, no, not really. Are they better than they were in 2015, 2016? Well, yeah, but they were historically bad in 2015, 2016. So no, the Northern Arizona has not rebounded yet. The other team, Southern Utah, um, that was 2013-14 season. Southern Utah is in the midst of their best seasons since 2013-2014. Southern Utah is not – it's not like they're doing that well. They are 9-8 and eight in conference, 14-12 and 12 overall. Now, 14-12 and 12 includes some wins over sub-D1 opposition. And would Idaho be happy to be 9-8? and eight? Yeah. But it's taken Southern Utah four years to get to around 500 basketball after their after 2013-14 season. You know, Southern Utah won five league games last year. Now, they beat us in conference, won a couple of the conference tournaments to make it look like maybe they're better than they were. But um, Southern Utah was not good last year. They've rebounded a little bit this year. But jumping back to the point, is there a big sky precedent for us improve, for a team improving within one year? No. The common denominator for the teams that did improve, you know, NAU hasn't yet wholly improved. And by the way, they have a young roster. Um, but the common denominator is roster turnover and possibly coach turnover. Sac State didn't rebound until 2014-15. You know what happened? They got new guys. Southern Utah has a completely different roster and a different coach from the 2013-14 season. And NAU, they're playing young guys, which means they couldn't have been on the team for 2015-16, it's roster turnover that that makes teams better. I mean, as simple as it might be to say, what makes a team better? Getting better players. So what what's Idaho's chances for next year? You know, that's a good question. Um, I, I think there's some ways where maybe we would say that this team is the worst out of those three, you know, based off SRS, it's the 71-72 team. But, you know, in terms of what we're looking at now, this is a not strong Big Sky Conference season, and we had a rough season. So, yeah, this truly could be one of the worst in recent in the last 40 years, at least, Idaho teams. And, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens between now and next year. And, by the way, part of why I say the roster turnover is something for us to pay attention to and not just guys getting older is other teams' players get older, too. So if our guys get better as they get older – if the other players are already better than ours, and I'm basing that off of our negative 15-point scoring margin, well, they're going to continue to get better. You know, Let's go team by team real quick. There's a few teams that will have some turnover. Montana, Montana State, Weber State, Eastern Washington, Washington, and Portland State all lose some key pieces, but every one of those teams is going to return a guy who will likely make one of the two all-big sky teams. Montana's going to lose the most, but they'll return Saeed Pridget, who is likely a, a first or second team All-Big Sky player this year. 
And they return Kendall Manuel, who will probably start from next year. He's an Oregon State dropdown. He will be a different player when he's playing starter minutes. Montana State loses Tyler Hall, but Harold Frey is their most important offensive player now. He's coming back next year. Weaver State loses their post bracket Chapman and Zach Braxton, but they might return the best guard combo in the league next year in Jared Harding and Cody John. And in Eastern, they lose their third leading scorer, Jesse Hunt, but they bring their top two scorers back, Mason Peetling and Jacob Davison. And Portland State, they lose some kind of nominal contributors. Um, so all those teams, they will have a lot of returning talent, plus Montana and Weber State, and you can say Eastern now, they have a competitive advantage with us in recruiting because of recent success, or for Montana, long-term success. Now let's look to the other bracket teams, like who, who has no turnover. Idaho State, Southern Utah, Northern Arizona, and Idaho. None of those teams lose a single starter to graduation. Idaho State, Southern Utah, and NAU are all above us. So does that mean our guys are going to leapfrog theirs off of one year? I don't know. We The scoring margin says there's a mile between where Idaho is and where the rest of the Big Sky is. That SRS ranking says there's a long way between Idaho and the rest of the league. The next closest team to us in SRS ranking is Idaho State. Well, we're seven points worse than Idaho State, and we are eight points worse than the next worst SRS ranked team in Northern Arizona. Those are teams that bring everyone back. So I don't know if we're going to be able to leapfrog those teams just based off of players coming back. And in terms of heavy turnover, Sacramento State and Northern Colorado, both are teams that are going to be on the rebound because they lose by far their best players and there's no clear replacement level player for them. So of that entire league that we just went through, the two teams that are candidates for us to leapfrog are Sac State and Northern Colorado. Now, that doesn't mean they won't have players come in. But those are the teams who, on paper, it looks like, hey, these are our chances. Who else do we leapfrog based off the roster in front of us? Now, we know the roster in front of us isn't going to play all the games next year because we, we for sure have Jack Wilson, four-star dropdown from Oregon State, who could be a big deal for us. And Mark L. Frazier will be back, too. But keep in mind, our, our average margin of loss or our scoring margin is nine and a half points worse than the next closest team. We could demonstrate stratospheric improvement and still be in last place. We can improve our scoring margin by eight points and still be a point and a half behind Idaho State in scoring margin, still easily in last place in the conference. Um, so jumping back to the, the question from Chris, the question from Kyler, we'll get more of the football stuff later. But, but I think, yeah, I'm fine saying this is at least one of the three worst teams in program history. No question the worst in the 21st century. No question the worst in Don Verlin's time in Moscow. Um, and in the offseason, it's going to be a real question. You know, we'll, when we do the full season po post-mortem, I want to go player by player to say this is what we're seeing and uh, to go over who, who are the assets and who are the players who are still a few players away and who, who might be gone just based off of their role. So we'll do that in different podcasts, but um, yeah, man, this is, this is rough. And I guess I lied to you guys. Um, the Boise state versus FCS title. I guess we're, we're running out of time. I, I think that deserves its own 20 minutes. So I'm going to table that for next week. So I go, yeah, sorry guys. We'll get to that later. Cause that, that was a, a good question posed by Chris, we got the idea from Montana Mint of would you rather have your 
Would you rather have your favorite NFL team win a Super Bowl, have the Vandals beat their rival, which for us we're talking Boise State, or would you rather would you rather have Vandals win an FCS championship? There's a lot to break down there, which I want to focus on the Boise State uh, FCS component in next week. So yeah, we'll call that a teaser so we can get we can fully flush out the research because we're pretty deep in this podcast anyway. Um, but yeah, I want to I want to thank you guys for downloading. I want to make sure you guys think about uh, sending in your hashtag AskTATCs uh, because it's it's fun when we have different direction for the podcast to go. Uh, next week, we'll definitely have a little bit of the Boise State versus FCS talk. We'll go over the basketball games, and we'll, we'll see if there's any more big Idaho news. So thanks for downloading, guys. If you are a business interested in sponsoring, make sure to email us at tubsoftheclub at gmail.com. We do have a uh, process of making making sure we think that the sponsor is right for us and we're right for the sponsor. So make sure to contact us at tubsoftheclub at gmail.com. If you're looking for more Idaho content, make sure to follow at Tubs the Club on Twitter. You can follow me at Brian Marceau. You can also make sure to follow anyone who's using the hashtag AskTATC. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for downloading. And as always, go Vandals.